Why did, why did he say brace brace? Because he was freaking out. Because he was just so high strung. Like he, he, he was. So he just decided to freak everybody okay, so, out for so no this, reason? This guy, anytime we would land any place in the common zone, he would pop the top escape hatch. He would stand up. And he would take pictures, like, like you know that fucking game where you hit those things. <laughs> the whack-a-mole deal. I was like, this, this, this mofo is gonna get popped. You were going. Someone's to get gonna shot. shoot this guy in the side of the head as a sniper. Yeah. Welcome to the show, old GP. How you doing, brother? I'm doing good, man. Very nice. Thanks for having me out. You betcha. What What are we doing here? All right. So we talked about this last week, last month, I guess. Now. Yeah. I also run the Bourbon Club for the state of Arkansas. Right. Right. So. One point we had like 800 members, and we'll get to why we don't have 800 members anymore. Now we have a more comfortable 220, working to 250. Did you just kick people out? What happened? <sighs> Man, that, that's that's going to be fun. We'll talk about that here. Okay. I guess we can we can start with that. We can well, end no, no, with no, that. No. Yeah, no I mean, worries. There's a whole reason for that. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah we'll get to that. No worries. Okay. So anyways, yeah. uh, we do barrel picks. Mm-hmm. That's one of my passions, other than flying, is doing whiskey. So for me, um, we did this with Buffalo Trace. So there's a thing that happens every year called the single barrel program and that's what this is so you as a general consumer can sign up and you have like a one in sixty four thousand chance of winning this i mean there's literally 60 to seventy thousand people that are logged on at noon exactly on this date oh my god trying to get this barrel so and it's highly allocated because whiskey like this is allocated in other words you only get so many in the state Mm -hmm. so this is outside the allocation process so it's a sought after type of deal so we were fortunate enough that one of my members got this. And this is actually a military organization that was doing a charity for this. So um, it's the uh, Operation Trails End. Basically, they're raising money for the Red Cross version of the Air Force and Army together, making getting money for people, that wounded warriors, mm-hmm. et cetera, stuff like that. Um, so we, we do a lot of charity events, too, in our bourbon club, and I'll talk about that in a bit. But <clears throat> basically, um, we got 220 bottles of this for our club. And we went down to Frankfort, Kentucky, mm-hmm. where Buffalo Trace, the um, the mecca, if you will, of the bourbon world, uh, creates this. And we got to choose from four different barrels. Went through the whole tour, and then they gave us a chance to try four different samples. Right. At the barrel proof, which is 140 proof. And this is 90 proof when it's bottled. Gotcha. Much easier to drink. So anyways, uh, we got this, and we got it in last month. So I thought I'd bring a bottle and allow you guys to keep it up on your shelf. Absolutely. Uh, Man, I feel really bad about drinking it. This no, is, trust me. It, this, is, this, this is my well, honor to do this. Well, what a know. cool story. I mean, uh, there's an incredible <clears throat> mission behind it. It's camaraderie. It does a good cause. How awesome. It, it is. And, and we do a lot. We, uh, you remember the uh, Monette, Truman, and Leechville had a big tornado run through mm-hmm. uh, earlier last year, late last year, and destroyed most of the town, destroyed uh, two nursing homes and other stuff. So we had a charity event where we – Donated bottles from people's like collection, like my collection and from some of my friends' collection. Other people in the club got together and we raised uh, $10,000 um, and we sent checks for 3333 to each of the towns and then so they could use it. I mean, obviously in the grand scheme of things, it's not a lot of sure. money, but if they can buy a new generator or something for the nursing home or whatever, hey, we're happy about it. Go so, to a good cause. Um, so it worked out real well and we do other stuff throughout the year. It's just uh, one of those things. It's fun. And, and plus, cool. you, wow. know, you get to enjoy bourbon. So yeah. uh, let's start it off right here. Let's do, do it, a little man. cheers. The By far the best story of any bottle we have here. Well, so we talked about this last week a little bit. I, I drink my bourbon neat. Right. Neat, obviously, without ice. Um, and it's all preference. Some people love to add ice. And I can tell you what stuff's higher proof. Maybe ice is not a bad idea because it helps bring out the notes and the flavor of a good whiskey. Sure. Um but for me, I, I just 
like room temperature and it doesn't get diluted. Plus, I drink so much high proof stuff. I mean, this is like drinking tap water. Right. But it's it's good tap water. Take it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Cheers. Cheers to that. So we say good to tap us, water. those who like us, too damn few. I'll drink tap water with you any day. Uh, that's some good stuff, stuff right? man. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> that's exactly and see, what it is. When you, when you see a barrel pick like this, you see these stickers, and, mm-hmm. and that tells you that it was picked out with a group rather than the master distiller at, at a, and we'll talk about it later too. They'll just sure. go in there and, and you get to choose and decide what suits yeah. your profile better. I so. love it. I've got a list of stuff I want to talk about. Yeah, sure. I had whiskeys as the back end, but because we're on whiskeys, we can jump ahead a little bit. Hey, whatever. I'm, I'm, we'll go back and forth. You know, I'm used to flying back and forth all the time. So Right. Well, <laughs> you, you know. said aviation and then whiskeys. What what got you to whiskeys? I mean, was, was there something that happened? It just kind of occurred? Yeah, it's, it's great, great. Um, Great segue, I guess. So one of my closest friends, he's another pilot for Delta. We were stationed together in the military for many years, flew together a lot. And uh, I'm a big golfer. That's my, my my big sport as I do golf. I've been golfing since I was in diapers. So Airplanes, whiskey, golf. Yeah. Well, it depends on how good a golf is. <laughs> if I'm playing well, then it's, and then golf's at the top. If yep. not, it's like, hey, right. I can stay in the bag. Exactly. So um, about 2005, mm-hmm. um, I was a... Pilot instructor at Vance Air Force Base in Enid, Oklahoma. Okay. And our mission, obviously, is to train brand new people who have flown maybe never, never even been in a plane, you know, basic airmanship, basic flying skills. They start in the T-37, now the T-6, mm-hmm. Texan II. Um, and that's how I gave myself. I started in the T-37, you know, 1956 is when it came into production. And that thing has been bent all manner of hell. Right. I mean, you just can't kill that plane. Yeah. I mean, they had to basically chop it up to kill it. Wow. So, um, we were flying in the T-1, which is a Beach 400, um, and uh, it's the Air Force's trainer to get people to learn how to fly heavy aircraft. So we were flying into Eagle County, Colorado. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's mm. pretty scary air for, uh, airfield. It's you know, in the middle of the mountains, and there's special departure procedures going in and going out. And we have very specific stuff for the aircraft we flew. If, if it's not VFR, we can't go in there because really? we can't maintain the climb rate IFR, which is – you know, like a rocket ship, basically. Right, and it just can't do it. Right, so if you can see and avoid, then we can go ahead. So VFR, we could go ahead and, you know, visual flight rules fly out there and avoid the mountains. Sure. So we planned the perfect day. We went in there, and you go in there, you buy gas. They give you a car. So me and my buddy, Matt, drove to Vail, which is actually Eagle County and Vail Airport is not Vail, Colorado. It's like a 35-minute drive. Really? It's way out. Yeah, you, wow. get, you go, oh, I'm just going to hop, hop off the over. plane and hop on the slopes. You're like, Damn, I'm still in a damn car. Exactly. Yeah. So we drove out to this, um, to Vail, and they have a little German like village. And we had this uh, German restaurant we went to. And we had this great meal, and we left. We came back, and as we're driving on to, through the gate onto the airfield, I look over and I see this um, site, uh, would be a um, citation 10. And I look on the tail, and I go, hmm, that looks familiar to me. Holy crap, it's Arnold Palmer's plane. So I walk up to the pilot who looks like the pilot, you know, batting it down. I'm like, hey, sir. I'm like, this Mr. Arnold Palmer's plane. He's like, mm-hmm. yes, sir, it is. And I was in my uniform in my flight suit at the time. He goes, you want to look around? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Why not? Why not? I mean, it's Arnold Palmer's plane. So I walked around mm-hmm. and all his pillows were in there with his logo, his umbrella. You know, it's got, he was sponsored by like Kettle One. He loves vodka, right? So he's got like Kettle One with his umbrella in the back of it and this little gift basket. And yeah. Like, this is incredible. So his pilot, Pete Luster's retired lieutenant colonel, flew F-111s back in 
Vietnam and all these wars in the back in the day, you know, retired guy went to work for um, Cessna. And then Arnold came in and said, Hey, I want to have you as my, my pilot now after, cause he went through several pilots, you know, he was a world famous golfer, but he was a world famous pilot. He had 20,000 hours when he passed away. Right. So he was the first person to really bring aircraft into professional sports, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. And you look at everybody has their own plane now that has any wealth. Sure. So he was able to travel to all these tournaments. So I'm digressing off the bourbon, but I'm getting to it because yeah, of yeah. how this comes into I love it. And the story I'm going to tell about this Arnold Palmer one's the only time it's ever been told in public that I'm going to tell here. Are you serious? Bit. Yeah. This is cool. Are we worthy? <laughs> Let's just hope it didn't get out. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, and man, God rest his soul. Yeah. So, I kept in contact with Pete. He says, Hey, you know, are you planning on getting out anytime soon? I said, mm -hmm. Well, I'm thinking about it. This was about 2005, 2006. And I was planning on getting out in around 2007, even though I came in in 93. And we'll cover that in a bit. But I was, Hey, I'm getting tired of this. I would like to go fly commercially, maybe, or privately. Sure. So, I kept in contact with him. And I was like, Hey, I'm thinking about getting out. And this is 07 now. Fast forward. He goes, why don't you come up and talk to me? We're looking for a pilot. Ooh. He's like, we need someone to fill the seat when Mr. Palmer doesn't want to fly. So he can kind of sit in the back and talk and entertain people. So I went up there and kind of like a mini type of interview situation, but I wasn't really sure that's what I wanted to do. And we get up there and of course, we, we had a car from the FBO and we drive up to this place called Legends Drive. And that's where he lives on Levin, Legends Drive. I'm like, oh, we made the wrong turn. It's not an office. It's a, this is a someone's like private residence. Yeah. So I get to the end of the block and there's this giant umbrella, which is his logo, and it's on this office. I'm like, oh, I guess it's his office. So we went in there and we met Mr. Parr and we spent 45 minutes talking. He All he wanted to do was talk about flying and all I wanted to do was talk about golf. But it's Mr. Palmer. We're talking about flying. Absolutely. You know, he's asking me questions of like, oh man, I need to start studying more. <laughs> what kind of engine do you have on your aircraft? I'm like, I should probably know this. Yeah, right, right, right. How embarrassing. So anyways... My, Pete says, hey, you know, you want to take a ride with me? I have to go pick up Mr. Palmer's granddaughter down in Florida, and I need someone to go, and Mr. Palmer can't go. I'm like, oh, I will not have to be able to explain this to my boss if I do this. So mm -hmm. I po politely declined. We were on our way to New York at the time anyways, so I couldn't do it. But I kept in contact, and then they got a hold of me a year later, and I decided to stay in till my 20 years. So I thanked him very much and, wow. and went a different direction. Yeah. But my best friend, Joel Stevens, who's other – Delta pilot now, and he was also in the military. My dad and I started trekking up there on our annual pilgrimage over Father's Day weekend to go and play golf up at his course at Latrobe Country Club in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And you fly into Westmoreland Airport, which is now Arnold Palmer Regional. Uh, Spirit Airlines used to go in there. I don't know if they do any more other than that. It's just small aircraft. Sure. So about the third year doing this, uh, probably 2009 maybe, Joel goes, my, my buddy Joel's from like, Bardstown, Kentucky. Okay. Hey, man, I want to meet Arnold Palmer. I'm like, all right, all right. He's like, I want to go up there and I want to meet him. I'm like, yeah. All right, we can do that. So we plan this huge trip. And Joel's into bourbon because he's from Bardstown, Kentucky. That's the mecca right, hometown of bourbon, of right? Mm. Heaven Hill, you know, you got Willet. You have all the distilleries in this little pocket. Four Roses, you know, um, Jim, Jim Beam's right around the corner. You right. know. So we got a car. We drove to Bardstown and we spent a week driving from there up there to, for the golf mecca, met my dad up there, and then we come back. So the first two days we spent in Bardstown. And I I was a big scotch guy at one point. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I'm like, hey, I'm like, I'm going to try this bourbon. And I started a 
learn about bourbon. And the first time I tasted bourbon, I'm like, man, this is a lot better than scotch. Right. This is scotch is like drinking old man feet or something like that, man. It's like it's a smells malty. Because you know, you know, they make they make scotch by using peat moss. Right. Like shit that they pull off a bog and, and they smoke it in a warehouse. And that's right. why it's got that that, that musky kind of it's like a it doesn't suit me. That funk you don't like. And, yeah. and I drank it because hmm, I'm sophisticated. Yeah, absolutely. I should drink scotch. You yeah. know, but I'm like, all right, I'm done this. Yeah. First time I had bourbon, I'm like, all right, I know what it's like to be a redneck. I can deal with this shit. Sure, right? yeah. I don't want to drink this stuff. So, you know, you learn about, you know, learn about bourbon. 51% corn has to be distilled in new charred oak barrels. It has to be made in the United States. It has to go into the barrel. Um has to be still no higher than 160 and go into the barrel at no hundred than 125. Mm-hmm. And there's other stuff stipulated in there, but for the most part, that's the basic. That's what classes. That's what classes bourbon. Right. Now there are things that I've seen, like in my travels with Delta, like going to like Switzerland and they got Swiss bourbon. Can't call it that, but who's going to sue Switzerland? Sure, right. You know what I mean? <laughs> they have more money than than the entire world together. I mean, you're yeah. not going to sue fucking Switzerland, <clears throat> right? So, um, I started to love this stuff. I'm like, this stuff's amazing. So Joel and I spent two or three days there, like I said, playing golf and then drinking some bourbon, going to some place, meeting all his relatives. I'm sure they're all related. You know, I give him shit about that all the time. <laughs> so, so, I, My brother, cousin, mother's yeah, sister. Sister's yeah. nephew's third cousin, not removed. So, so I, I'm like, all right, fine. So we go up and we get up to Latrobe. And he's like, man, he's like, I want to meet Arnold Palmer. I'm like, Joel, we're going to meet him. We're going to be here for a week. Yeah. So we roll down that same road, Legends Boulevard, and I see – his office, like, oh, that's his office. I'm like, it is. He kind of reminds me adult version of Bobby from King of the Hill. Yeah. So yeah. now you have something in your head I to got see it. what it is. Okay. He looks just like an adult version of Bobby, like <clears throat> built it. exactly, but just taller. So we walk in there, but Mr. Palmer's not there. So Bob Demagon, who's his personal assistant, who eventually became a pretty good friend of mine, um, brought us in. Hey, Gary, come on in. Let's show you the office. And you get to walk around and you see stuff like the, 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 Claret Jug, he won for the British Open. You get to see the Masters Trophy because they actually give a trophy for the Masters too. It's of the actual clubhouse. And then the coolest thing was they have um, – he was really good friends with Dwight Eisenhower. A lot of people don't know that. Very mm. close friends with him. He has Dwight Eisenhower's golf clubs sitting there. And I got to hold Dwight Eisenhower's 7-iron. It was amazing. I mean, like I'm a kind of a freak about that type of stuff. Like it's history is amazing to me, this stuff. So, sure. so it was so cool. Like I'm actually holding Dwight Eisenhower's golf, the guy that like, I w- I wouldn't led. It. There's no way. I was like, you're not going to, you're not going to go there and not do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and he was like, cool with it. So <clears throat> went through the whole tour and, and in his back office, he built his own clubs. He's got like 10,000 putters. People send him stuff all the time. Like Mr. Palmer, I'm seeing you're having problems with putting here. Try this. Right. You know, like, yeah. dude, I'm Arnold Palmer. Thank That's you. But yeah, you know, well, right. <clears throat> so we start leaving and Joel's like, man, he's like, I didn't get to see Arnold Palmer. I'm like, dude, we're going to be here for a week. Relax. Yeah. As we're walking out, Mr. Palmer built his house on top of this hill that goes down to his 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 office. Okay. And he has an old house that he used to live in with his first wife, Winnie, but she passed away. And with his new wife, he didn't want to live in the same house, so he built a new house. So he's coming down the staircase. Joel goes, hey, Mr. Palmer. And as he did, his dog Mulligan runs between his legs and trips him. So I'm about here to where the camera is. And I go, and I run over and I grab Mr. Palmer from behind. Now, he's a big guy. He's still a big guy even for being 84 years old. And he starts falling down. I go, Joel, help. He goes, oh, my God. First time Joel met Arnold Palmer, I have him from behind. <laughs> and Joel has his hand in his lap. <laughs> oh, and, my God. And so we get up. 
and I brush my hands off and he brushes his hands off and I look at Joel and I look at Mr. Palmer. He looks at me and his brother Jerry and my dad and his friends Randy are running at full speed over to us. And we look at each other and he just looks at each and he goes, he goes, his brother Jerry goes, oh my God. He's like, what was that all about? He goes, do you have bacon in your pocket or something? He goes, your damn dog tried to kill me. And of course, it's his dog. Right. So we kind of just laughed it off and then Mr. Palmer went his way and I could see Bob's face from the window because his window sits like, like we'd be right there and he's like in his office and I could see his face like this is going to be the we're going to kill Arnold Palmer and it's going to be on Golf Channel yeah two idiots kill him waving at him right so we leave and we're driving out of the thing and I look over him and I go well got to meet Mr. Palmer you met him you met him wow so, yeah. that's insane <laughs> I know right and I was just like that's just you, you can't make that shit up no not at you all know? I mean like I can guarantee you Joel that no one ever has a story like that the first time that Mr. Palmer no absolutely Most like, not with, you know, behind shaking his hand. Well, what did he say? What was what was your friend's? I mean, was he mortified or he was like, that was the best thing ever? So he's he just kind of looked at me and he's like, what's well, going to make the next encounter a little more awkward, isn't it? <laughs> you <laughs> right. know? When I come back again tomorrow. I said, Joel, you're going to be drunk on bourbon. You're not going to remember. Don't worry about it. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of how I got into bourbon. Joel got me into it. We took him up on the trip and I remember he bought these two handles of, of, um, Maker's Mark. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, that's great. It's going to last us through the whole week. He goes, oh, man. It's like, this is for me. <laughs> for tonight. <laughs> for tonight. Jeez. Oh, yeah. Great story, yeah. man. Wow. So that's the whole bourbon thing. So I got into it. And, and then for a spell, you know, there was, you know, they had the secondary market. If you've heard about that. We talked about that a bit too. But there, there's a lot of bourbon has become like artwork for a lot of people. They buy it and they can sell it for an amazing yeah. amount of money. Like yeah. Pappy Van Winkle. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anthony Bourdain and a couple of their chefs made it really big in the late two thousand, mid 2000, 2009, 2010. And then it really caught in about 2013 and 14. It started blowing up. You get a bottle, say, for retail on a Pappy would be 125 bucks, And they're going for four or $5,000 on the yeah. secondary market yeah. if you can find them. However, one thing I've learned that the stuff that's on the shelves, like a Knob Creek, Angel's Envy, Larceny, uh, Buffalo Trace is allocated, but, you know, this is a $25 bottle if you sure. can find it. And usually yeah. it's about that price unless you get a place that just wants to try to make money off you. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff you can drink that's just fun to drink and a lot less expensive rather mm -hmm. than chasing, you know, chasing the, chasing the ghost. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and that's pretty much how I got into it. And then I just started the club and I started doing more barrel picks. We'd go to places and we'd begin to, like, go through the taste profiles and you'd start meeting people in the community um, good, good, real good friend of mine, Fred Minnick, is one of the guys. He's one of the bourbon critics at most of the San Francisco World Spirit competitions. He's pretty big in the bourbon world. He does a lot of barrel picks, does a lot of YouTube stuff. Um, he's going to have his own show here on television pretty soon I've, with some, I'm not sure which corporation he's going to do it with. But Sure. And you just start to meet people, and it's a really close-knit group, a lot like flying. And that's, mm -hmm. I think that's probably why I gravitated to it yeah. because yeah, yeah, it's yeah. so much like flying. Like You build relationships in a lot of ways for life when it comes to I mean, let's face it. People that you fly with are people that you trust with your life. Yeah. Right? So I think that's why I was gravitating in that direction with that. So that's pretty much how I got into bourbon. And now it's pretty much my passion when I'm not when I'm not flying. When did you when did the flying with Palmer end? When was how long did you do that? Well, I didn't actually fly with him. I, I turned the job like, down. Oh, completely. Because oh, because oh, 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 yeah, oh, so okay. I so yeah, I mean we go back. So I turned it down in 07 mm -hmm. because my goal was to stay into twenty years. What happened was my boss said to me, Gary, I know what you're doing. You're thinking about getting out. Come talk to me. So he showed me you're going to get promoted. Just stay in. Stay in to 20 years and then decide what you want. You're still young enough. Because I was pretty young back then. So I said, all right, that's great. So, um, you know, it wind up being that 
it wouldn't have paid that much anyways. And, and I would have been on call and corporate, the corporate world is, is a, is a far different animal. I did it for about two months when I got out in 2014, when I retired and you're always on call and you have to decide, Hmm, am I going to enjoy this the rest of my life or I'm just going to be somebody else's, you know, basically taxi driver. That's it. You're basically on call taxi driver. You can't drink. You can't plan vacations because they might say, Hey, I make a billion dollars. I own a $60 million Gulfstream. I want to go to the Bahamas and you got to fly me. Yeah. And then you got to sit in the Bahamas and wait till they're done. Right. So I said, yeah, I'm going to skip that. So I, I flew for a local family. They're great people. And then I just decided that, Hey, that's not really the route I want to go. Um, and it turned out they wound up selling the plane because the first thing a corporation does when they start losing money is to sell the biggest Biggest, anchor. Yeah. And that's a plane. You know, you think, what does an aircraft cost to fly wet these days? Five, six grand? Right. If if that's even being conservative? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, all right, I'll stay in. So I stayed in. I did uh, two more tours uh, at Little Rock. That's when I came brought to Little Rock, the 41st and then the 48th. Mm-hmm. 41st is an active duty squadron. The 48th is a active duty squadron, but it's a training squadron. So I flew the C-130J model my last eight years. And, of course, you know, um, you know, s- several deployments flying that aircraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so then when I got out in 2014, um, I moved to Italy for four months and trained Italians how to fly. Wow. In Pisa, which was ridiculous. I should have never left that. But you can only do it four months at a time because of the visas. You liked it? Yeah. What was what was so great? Well, first of all, the weather's beautiful. It's sure. like California all the time. I love California weather. I don't like California, but I love the weather. Right. All right. Yeah. So, and people are just happy. The food is good. The views are good. And they put us right up on the ocean, on Marina de Pisa. And you just look out over the bay and you can see all these gorgeous boats and gorgeous women and blue water and all this stuff out there. It's fantastic. And, you know, but I was like more about getting out to explore as much as I could. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'd go every weekend to Cinque Terre, which is the five cities, which is the north, northeastern part of, of the country. You'd take a train up and the train system is quasi-dependable. It may or may not show up on time, but at some point it's going to show up. Yeah. Right. So I did that and I trained the Italians for four months. Uh, No Italian. They want you to speak in English because they want them to teach English, but they got a great, nine to four, man. That's their job, nine to four. Yeah. They take an hour to two hours for break for lunch. They have their coffee in the morning or their cappuccino Mm -hmm. and then in the evening, their grappa and then they go home. Yeah. I get my own car. It was a pretty good deal. So I enjoyed it. So I went kicking and screaming. Yeah. So Delta called me was out there. And I said, well, I'm going to interview. I said, well, can you interview next week? I said, well, I can't do that because I made a commitment to these folks. And let's say I come out there and don't get hired by you guys. Mm -hmm. They're not going to want me back. Plus, it gave me three months to study and prepare and get ready for the exams that they require you to take to get hired. Sure. So in November of 14, I went back, interviewed, and got hired. And then I've been with Delta since then. So that's kind of how I got into that. But it all started from from me deciding I wanted to fly back when I was a kid because my yeah. uncle was a Delta pilot. So it all started, kid dream. About seven years old. Bit by the bug. Bit by the bug. My uncle took me up in his Mini. We used to fly around Long Island. Yeah. And there's just, you know, I can't see out over the windscreen. I still can't see over the windscreen now, but <laughs> but, but but at least I had an excuse back then because I was a child. Right. So um, <laughs> he used to take me when we lived in Houston because I was born in Houston. And uh, even though you can't tell from my accent, but I've moved so much. Midwest, right. East Coast, South, just whatever. Right. Get it. So, anyways, um, <clears throat> I joined when I was twenty uh, because of an incident that happened. So, you probably know. Well, I talked about it briefly, but I used to do B 
BMX freestyle professionally. Yes, that is number two on my list. Okay, behind the talk about whiskeys. All right, so go ahead. You ask questions, and I, I'll just yeah. Well, I'll, let's uh, yeah, yeah. Let's let's do let's do BMX real quick. Okay, I want to know all about that. Why? Okay. and how so long? In the early '80s, a movie came out called Rad. You may or may not know about this. Yes, sir. Okay, I saw that. I'm like, that's what I want to do. Screw flying. I want to do that. Yeah. That looks a lot more fun. Groupies, you, women. You, you were know. how old at this at this point? Twelve. So my metal shop teacher, his daughter was a BMX racer, and that's he 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 like that. She did it as a hobby. Wow. So he got me into it, but I had to get a bike, and my dad's like, "I'm not spending two hundred and fifty dollars on a bike. You're out of your damn mind. You're just gonna it's gonna be another thing that you don't really want to do." I'm mm-hmm. like, "No, I want to do this." He goes, "Then I'll make a deal with you. You pay for half of it, and I'll pay for the other half." Actually, the bike was five hundred dollars, so I had to come up with two hundred fifty. Right. So I got a job as I was twelve years old, twelve and a half, almost thirteen. I got a job at a pet shop, mm-hmm. totally illegal. There's no way it was like. I mean, this is like child labor laws. Sure, Hong Kong making fucking Nike shoes. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, they're like, like I shouldn't be doing this. So he yeah. paid me, and I ain't shitting you, fifty cents an hour. Wow. So I got two hundred fifty bucks. Think about how many hours I had oh to work my cleaning boa shit. Yeah. And I mean, there was always bones. I'd find all that they had a boca shirker that got lost in this place at one time. I couldn't find it for like three weeks. And this place was a total, it was like a hoarder's nightmare. It was like an episode of American Pickers when he walks into someone's backyard and you're like, I think there's a cage over there and maybe a litter box over there. So this boca shirker got loose. We had no idea where it was. And we just find kitten bones oh, showing up. Gosh. And this guy had like bite marks all over him. I don't, I was like, I got to get out of here. But oh, it was the only place that would hire me. This was not like your typical Petco or Pet Smart. Yeah. This was. No, I would not call this Petco. Some guy's basement. <laughs> this is frightening. This is like Billy, Billy Bob, like, like puts the lotion on type vibe. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like it does what it's told her. It gets the hose. So I'm like, okay, all right. Just close your eyes when you go to work. Don't make eye contact. Just get your money and get out of here. Right. I, you know, a couple of years ago, I went back that way. It's not there anymore. I think they burned the freaking building to the ground. Good. So I got my 250 bucks. My dad matched it like he did, and I got a GT. So I started my first race. It was terrible. I was like, maybe this is a mistake. <laughs> Crashed, and people, you know, screaming <clears throat> at me, get out of the way, you idiot. Mm-hmm. Then I just started practicing, and all of a sudden, it just got a little bit better. It got a little bit better. And then I started winning all these races. And then I got to the point where I didn't want to race. I wanted to jump. I'd lose the race to make a really cool trick and jump. So this track, one of the track managers said, all right, you're a danger to everyone out here because you're jumping. Yeah. I suggest you try freestyle. Well, what's freestyle? He's like, he's like, go get this. And he, and he hands me this video and I watch it. And it's, it's the movie Rad. And I had seen it, but it hadn't sunk in really about the freestyle portion because it's at right. the beginning and the end. And then mostly it's about racing BMX. Mm-hmm. So I rewatched it. I'm like, oh, man, this is what I want to do. So I started renting all these videos from the local video store. You go down, you know, remember the old video store? You're excited because the video yeah. you want's there. On Absolutely. The yeah, like, yeah, oh my yeah. God, mom's here. <laughs> we got to get it. Well, you call them like, hey, can you hold it? We got it. We have one <clears> left. <throat> Put it aside. I'll come get it. Yeah, I'm on my way. So I basically broke rad. I broke the tape. And, you know, you couldn't really buy it because it was such a low budget filmed in Canada. Lori Laughlin was in it, for example, if you remember correctly. Right. Ass sliding. If you guys have seen the movie, you'll understand what I'm saying. So... Uh, Bart Connors was in it too, the the Olympic gymnast. He really? played, yeah, he played the uh, um, played the lead character uh, in there. Was it Bart Connors? Is he? Or was that the, the uh, character in the movie? Uh, no, I think he was Olympic gymnast, and he played the the antagonist in the movie. Sure. So a lot of these guys that I eventually became friends with and knew were in the original movie and did all the writing for it. Mm. 
So I got better and better and I started practicing in my basement. We had a basement that had a, like about an eight foot ceiling and concrete because we hadn't unfinished. Practicing in your basement. Yeah, so I practiced tricks and I get better and better with it. So we lived in Chicago at the time, Crystal Lake, north of Chicago, about 45 minutes. And my family lived up in Madison, my aunt, uncle, my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And we'd go to visit them all the time. So I started going to these events and I started meeting people through the sport and became friends with people and we started traveling and eventually... I was in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, the Quad Cities, and I met uh, this guy named Rick Molinturno, who used to ride for Harrell Bicycles. Him and Kurt Schmidt and Bill Nischke were three guys that were professional riders that got tired of stuff breaking. Because back then, it was made terrible. It was like riding a foam bike. It just would break every time you would jump. It was just terrible metal, Chinese metal, yeah. just, just terrible. <clears throat> so we got to make better bikes. So they started their own company with what little money they had together, and they started sponsoring people. So I was riding in a contest down there in 1989, okay. a couple of years before I graduated from high school in 91. I'm an old guy. So I was doing pretty well in this contest and I tried this trick I'd never tried before and I crashed and smacked my head. Ooh. And I remember waking up outside just staring over this cornfield and I couldn't remember what happened, right? I'm like, oh, I think I got a concussion. <laughs> I better go to the ER. So I went to the ER and the doctor's like, yeah, you got a concussion. I don't recommend you traveling for a couple of days. So I stayed at their place, crashed at their place. And while I was there, you know, I remember Rick was talking to me. He goes, hey, man, he's like, we kind of like you. You got a good attitude. I think you'd be good for the team. You want to come work for us? I'm like, work for you? He's like, yeah, we need a team manager. We need yeah. someone to sell bikes. I'm like, okay, hmm. sure. I mean, I'm getting basically an offer to job by one of my, you know, heroes growing up sure. as a kid. Yeah. You know, guys you get autographs from and you go to shows and he's riding. So we all lived together in this like three bedroom. I lived in the in an old converted laundry room that still had like moisture in it. And like I had to get a dehumidifier to suck all the moisture out <laughs> because it was like sleeping in a fucking the Congo or something. Yeah. You know? And my buddy Jamie lived in the basement. It was unfinished. And they lived in the other rooms because they were the, the pros and the stars. And they basically said, All right, here's a phone book. Here is a list of all the bike shops in the entire country. Just start cold calling them and selling them our product, which was frames and forks and bicycle parts at the time because mm -hmm. they hadn't gotten into full bikes yet, like full wheels and all that stuff. So I just started, let's say, you know, <clears throat> 17 years old, 18 years old. I moved out of the house when I was 18. As soon as I graduated from high school, I left, went right to Iowa. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I remember at one point they sent me to California because you would start when you did a bike tour for the summer when you would do a bike show, you would start in California. You'd ride in a van with no air conditioning all summer long, all the way to the East Coast, do shows all along the North, and then travel down to the South, coming home. Right. Why in the hell we traveled North first, and then the middle of summer came down to the South? <laughs> I don't know. Right, right. So they were sent me when I was, I think I was 18 at the time. They sent me by bus because we couldn't afford a plane ticket. So I took a Greyhound bus to... Um, Lincoln, Nebraska, where I picked up a train and then took an Amtrak all the way to Anaheim, California for the uh, Interbike, wow. which was a huge bike show that they had every year. And uh, I had to carry our brand new prototype frame with us. So I remember we had enough money for me to stay at this hotel called the Magic Lantern. And I, I shit you not, there was this giant lantern on a pole with a genie sticking out of it, like rubbing on it. We're in the right place. I'm like, oh my God. This is going to be great. So I'm in this hotel at 18 years old by myself, and I'm pretty sure there's like, you know, people smoking crack in the room on the left and God knows what's going on, on the right. Probably filming a porn for God's sake. Right. I don't know. This right. is horrible California. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to order food and I'm not going to leave the hotel. 
So in those three days that I was there, I ordered Chinese food, Italian food, and like American food. It was always delivered by the same kid, Asian kid on a bicycle. And I think it was the same com- the same, <laughs> same place, same restaurant. <laughs> it just, uh, <laughs> just and it all tasted the same. Stuff. But yeah, like, yeah, right, 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 right. So at one point, I had to bring these customers from Japan in to come show them these bike that we're selling. So I had all this stuff laid out in this bed and I'm like, this is really seems like this is this really is sketchy. This is sketchy as shit. Yeah. And they bought like $10,000 worth of no stuff. No shit. Yeah. Whoa. So, so I call Rick. I'm like, hey man, I just stole 10 grand worth of stuff. He's like, oh my God. Yeah. So he's like, okay, well, you're going to take the train all the way back and not have to take the bus this time. Okay. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Got the promotion. Right. Got the promotion. Nice. So <clears throat> on the way back, I went through Vail, Colorado on the train and I remember I got off the train there. I'm like, I want to live here. I was like, this place is where I want to be, mm-hmm. but I got to have a job that affords me something that can, because this job wasn't paying anything really. Sure. I mean, there was no real future in it. I was a good rider, but you know, we got guys like Dave Muir and Matt Hoff, and those guys are like upper echelon guys that are just, <clears throat> and they're broken. You know, Dave obviously passed away, but Matt Hoffman, you know, these guys, you know, broke their body trying to get to the top. So, yeah. 1993, it's February of 93. Birth year. Uh, no, <laughs> 20, I was actually 20 years old. Yeah, my birth year. <laughs> You're That's your birth year. Dear Lord. <laughs> All right. So in February of 93, <laughs> I was riding at a show in Hoffman Estates, Illinois, and a good friend, Jeff Cron, was riding one of our new prototype bikes. It was this 10-pound gigantic beast, and it was really heavy. And he's like, hey, I want to swap out these lighter forks for the ones you have in here. I'm like, I don't think that's a good idea because the bikes are made specifically to join to support together, it. support it. Yeah. So he did it anyways, and on his third jump, his uh, forks cracked, and he slammed his face in the ground and paralyzed himself right in front of me. Bled out everywhere. I remember he landed on his face, he rolled on his back, and he sat up once, and then he fell on his back, and that was the last time he moved from the waist down. And I just, I was sitting right there, I was ready to roll in, and I just looked, and I'm like, oh my God. Like, I, I, I'd never seen anything like that in my life. You know, I've never seen someone get hurt or death or something that would like just blow your mind. Yeah. I was just, staring at it. I'm like, I just threw my bike down. I went down there and I'm like, Hey man, I'm like, he's like, I can't move anything. I can't move. I can't feel anything. All right. Where are we? So we called the ambulance and they came and got him. And then, you know, we all got in our cars and we drove down to the hospital, which oh was in gosh. DeKalb, uh, Illinois, <clears throat> where we went down to. And, um, you know, he was there all, you know, for, he was there for almost a year. Yeah. Eventually he learned to get his upper body. He became a professional photographer. So, <clears throat> but he never got the ability to get out of a wheelchair. Wow. Two days later, I joined the military. <laughs> two, sit, two days after this I, event I was sitting on the edge of my bed and I'm like what do I do what do I do I, I'm, not, I'm 20 years old I'm like this is this kid was 18 I mean he's never gonna get to he, he, he's done I was done so I'm like I, I gotta do something so I, I, I decided I'm gonna go I joined the military two days later I had already flunked out of community college three times you know I mean I mean, how hard is it to go to community college I flunked out three times <laughs> right the Kennery County College. I couldn't stay in. My, my professor's like, maybe this is not for you. Maybe she'd consider the janitorial services. <laughs> I mean, I'm not kidding. I mean, my, my GPA when I graduated from high school was like a 1.83. I was not a good student. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I joined the military and then like everything just changed. My whole life changed. And like I went from this kid who was just worried about like, hey, you know, eating, living off a hamburger helper and, and, yeah, and little next? Debbie, you know, yeah. cakes and riding bikes because – I was making a little bit of money and I didn't have to pay for clothing, you know, getting sponsored by Mountain Dew and Pepsi and, you know, all the crap you want. Right. Uh, all right. I'm not doing this. So military changed my life. And I knew I wanted to fly, but you had to be an officer to fly in the military. And sure. you, uh, you know, you need to have a college education. Not anymore, but you did back then. <clears throat> but I was worried about my vision because my vision at the time was not great. So I went through MEPS, the Military Enlistment Processing Center. 
And I remember we went through and there was these guys like, all right, we're going to do your eye test next. I'm like, oh man, I hope I do well. He goes, what do you care? You can wear glasses. I'm like, no, I want to be a pilot. He goes, oh yeah, you got to have 20, 20. And he just started talking to me, asking me questions. And he asked why I joined. I told him the story. He's like, man, that's impressive. So we get up to the eye exam and I'm like 2200, like, you know, he goes, all right, go ahead and read this. And he's, I can hear him behind me saying the letters. Calling it out it to you? It came back with 2017 vision. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So, so I'm like, all right, well, okay. Let's do this. So it's on paper. Now, the beauty of how it works is once you're 2020, you can be whatever you want afterwards. As long as you start at 2020, you're okay. okay. So, you know, yeah, your Air Force can come back and get me if you want for this, but I think I gave you enough time to yeah, flesh to where we're square, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So um, I started my whole process. I decided, okay, well, I'm going to start here, enlisted work my way up and then and then that's how the military started mm -hmm. so that's kind of how the bmx thing brought transition into, into that trend tracing yeah wow so your aviation career started after you joined that that's sort of so i started to pay for you know flights here and there in cessnas mm -hmm. uh, i was stationed at effie warren in cheyenne wyoming you want to talk about i say fuck <laughs> sure a fuck all of first assignments <laughs> I go to, I join the Air Force to see what? Planes. I get stuck at a fucking missile base. Right. ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles. Yeah. Are you shitting me? There's Where's only the two bases in the entire Air Force that don't have planes, and I get stuck at one at of them. At one of them, yeah. And I get direct duty assignment because my, my recruiter said, what do you want to do? I want to be a pilot. He goes, sign here. Yeah. I'm like, sweet. Look at me. Yeah. Okay, I'll sign here. And I sign, and like, and then, you know, I'm like, I'm like, you know, got long hair down to here and getting yelled at. You're on the wrong damn flight, woman. Get out of here. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> and like, and so my buddies decided to play a joke on me when I showed up. They had put a whole bunch of condoms in my bag, and like, and, um, and so as I'm getting on the the bus to go to, my mom sees in the bag. She goes, oh, "What is this crap?" Gosh. So she, but I didn't know that she had taken them out. She took them out and she put tea bags in there. I'm not kidding. Like, 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 like Earl Gray, like yeah. John Luke Picard sipping tea shit. Wow. Right. So I show up at pilot at uh, at Indoc, and they they do a shakedown where they dump everything on the bed, mm -hmm. and they dump it out and they look down. They go tea bags, <laughs> tea bags. People show up with condoms and you show up with tea bags. The hell's wrong oh, with no. you? Oh no! And I'm like, oh god. Uh, and and like I didn't know what was in there. My mom later told me. <clears throat> Obviously, my buddies were when they wrote me. They're like, oh, I hope you found the condoms. I'm like, no, dude, they were tea bags. Tea bags, yeah. Assholes. Oh, gosh. So that started off the whole thing. And I yeah. used to sit, they used to make us clean everything in the military, you know, scrub everything with Brasso. Mm -hmm. And I used to watch, it was at uh, Lackland Air Force Base in Texas. And nearby was, um, uh, what was the one attached to it? Not not Lang, not Randolph. Um, there was a base attached to it, and they flew F-16s out of it. Mm-hmm. And he used to watch these F-16s go vertical every day, like straight up. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. So I said, all right, I got to figure out how I'm going to do this. So they trained me as a truck driver, vehicle operator, wrecker operator. And we okay. had, you know, your job was to basically drive around and pick up broken vehicles, be a taxi cab driver, be a bus driver, you know, learn to drive tractor trailers and stuff like that. Sure. So practicality-wise, it was not bad because I learned, you know, how to operate stuff from a military perspective. The good part, too, was I didn't have to go to technical school. Because it's such a, not a very demanding job, right? Right, right. So I just, instead of sending me to um, Shepherd Air Force Base up in Wichita Falls, Texas, they sent me right to Cheyenne. So I show up in the middle of winter. It's like December. 
Has anyone ever been to Cheyenne? <laughs> I have not. No. This shit could suck shellac off a fucking speedboat. The wind blows up there so much. Okay. I show up there and I'm in my dorm room and it's like minus 25 degrees out and I see this gigantic garbage can blown across the parking lot. Like, what the fuck did I just do? What am I doing? What am I doing here? So, So I show up to work and they teach me how to do all this stuff and my commander really liked me. So he's like, he's like, you want to be, you know, you want to be a pilot. I'm like, I do. He's like, well, you got to go back to school and you got to get better grades because your grades suck. Right. Grades come first. <clears throat> so he's like, all right, I'm going to put you through this program, this commissioning program, but you got to have a good grades to get into it. Yeah. You don't have good grades. So start taking some community college courses. Okay. So I had to pay for it too. And, and the GI bill, you can't, at the time you couldn't use it till you were out. And they only had partial tuition assistance. It wasn't much. So I got a second job waiting tables and busing tables at Great America, which is a big like hotel chain in that part owned by the Mormons. And it's all through that area. Okay. Really weird operation. It's like a, it's like you've been to Branson, right? Yeah. You know, Branson can get really weird. You know, like there's some areas like, this is weird. Like like seafood and crab legs around back and like weird ass roller coasters mixed in with like, like. It's, it's just like, a weird it's like ass. A cracker Barrel mixes with roller coasters. There you go. Yeah. Perfect. So kind of Great America is the same type of philosophy for for hotels. Yeah. So I worked there and put myself back through college, and and eventually got accepted to Colorado State. So down in Fort Collins, and what happened was I was seeing this girl at the time, and she's like, "Hey, would you go with me to Fort Collins to, you know, look at the school?" I'm like, "Sure, whatever." Right. You know. I mean, sign me up. I'm right there. 20 years old, 21 years old or whatever it was. I'm like, I'm not thinking about college, you know, exactly. thinking about one thing. <clears throat> so I went down there and um, <laughs> the guidance counselor there, she's like, why don't you apply too? I'm like, eh. she's like, just try. So I applied and I wrote this, I don't know, I guess a great letter because she fell in love with this letter. I wrote why I should be in college and I got accepted and she did. Really? No. Oh gosh. <laughs> oh no. Done for. Oh, that girl no. never spoke to me again. Yay, yay. I'm like, well, I am. What do you want? So, yeah, right. so now I, <clears throat> I got out, went back to college full-time. Mm-hmm. I joined the Air National Guard down in uh, Buckley, uh, Aurora, Colorado, Okay, doing the same job. And then eventually in 1998, I got commissioned. And then as a second lieutenant, came back in and started my pilot training career. Wow. Yeah. So cool. Excuse my ignorance on all of that. I was looking through, you yeah. had your logbook that you, that mm-hmm. you sent over. Um, and you had all of your hours broken down. Again, I'm sorry, I don't know anything about it. You had on there... 773 combat. Yeah. What okay. is that? All right. So I don't talk about this too much just because, I don't know, I guess maybe, you know, it, it feels braggadocious in mm-hmm. a way to a certain extent. I mean, I was very happy and fortunate to do it. So we'll start from that, I guess. That's a good good segue into how what that means. So those combat hours, those are flying in Afghanistan and Iraq. Wow. So 773. Yeah, I have 300 and some odd combat sorties. It's crazy when you think oh about it. It, it, it. It's mind-boggling. So, like how much that is when you break it down over a span of seven deployments. So, wow. September 11th, 2001, I was in my bed sleeping. It was nine something in the morning. I think 9.36 is when the first tower got hit. I can't remember exactly. I'd just flown a night tack the night prior, a night tactical mission Mm -hmm. in a C-130 where you fly low level at night on on NVGs, night vision goggles. I was exhausted. The phone rings. It's my dad. Gary, a Cessna just crashed into the World Trade Center. I'm like, oh, what the fuck, dad? Let me go back to sleep. He's like, Gary. So I had just moved into my new house in Abilene, Texas, and I didn't even have cable yet. So I had this fucking coat hanger, and I was turning the coat hanger, and it was 9.36, and all of a sudden, 
boom. Dad, that's not a Cessna. I got to go. And I hung up the phone. 20 seconds later, my phone rings. Colonel Pat Frost calls me. He's Gary. He's Lieutenant Penna. Pack your bags for 10 days. Get to the fucking squadron now. Click. I was like sitting up. I'm like, Dad, I called him back. I'm like, ah, this is before it's really cell phones and stuff. So I'm like, okay. So I packed my bag. I just threw, I don't even know what the fuck I threw in that bag. I mean, yeah. I don't even <clears throat> threw anything in there other than I was like in just shock. I was like, I didn't want to leave the TV. I, I was like, what's going on? Yeah. The world's ending. We're being attacked. So we get down the squadron and they take, I don't know, it was like 30 or 40 of us and they put us in uh, a alert facility. Alert facility back in, in, world, in the uh, Cold War was a nuclear facility where they would keep bomber pilots and they would keep them ready to go and they had to be ready to launch within like 30 minutes. Right. Right. Sorry. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So they put us in these old alert facilities so they had even, I mean, they had been defunct for like since before Reagan was president, right? Yeah. I mean, it smelled like must and there was cobwebs in there and stuff like that and we had to like, I think they had to like have an electrician come in and get the electricity going. So, <laughs> We were we were fixated. We brought television and we got it set up and we were watching the news. And while I was driving, I can't remember. I got to see, as soon as we got to the squadron, I remember I was driving down the highway to get to work and there was a line of cars waiting to get in base. And I'm like, fuck it. I'm just, I just went around everyone and says, I just showed my badge and I said, and they looked at me and they saw me in the uniform. I'm like, all right, go. And I went through. Yeah. And I got there right as the second tower fell and I watched it just fall. And I thought, holy fuck, what's next? Yeah. So prior to that happening, back in February, I got there in January of 2001 as a brand new co-pilot, like zero hours mm -hmm. of operational stuff. Always, you know, here at Little Rock, I was flying, you know, maybe 80 hours. So they assigned us to go on a deployment. Everyone deploys. Back then it was what they called like milk runs or you'd go, milk run is like it's an easy trip. Sure. And that was before the war started. So some of us are going to Germany and some of us are going to Oman out in you know, the Middle East and you just fly back and forth. Supplies from back from the um, um, uh, Gulf, Gulf War. Okay. We're still kind of, we're still there. Well, what happened was all the people going to Germany were all experienced co-pilots because Germany is great. You go to this place called Delta Squadron and all you do is fly and drink beer for four months. So they're not going to let us all greenhorns go. <clears throat> like, hey, newbie, you're not going. Yeah. You're going to go and fly milk runs in, in Oman. I'm like, okay. So when September 11th happened, we didn't have time to change the orders. So all the brand new co-pilots are going to Afghanistan and, and Iraq right up. Well, not Iraq at the time, but Afghanistan and Pakistan. So we fly in there and like it was just total chaos. I mean, I flew with this guy, Lieutenant Colonel uh, John Doresky. He was like this old crusty colonel and he was probably the best thing I could ever go with to fly for the first time. Yeah. So on November 26, 2001, I flew my very first combat mission into Pazni, Pakistan. And I just remember thinking, holy shit, this is no kidding for real. This is real. So the way Pazni sits, it sits outside the Gulf of Oman, and it sits on this cliff. It looks like the cliffs of Dover, mm -hmm. but out in that part of the world. And we had no radio frequencies except for one. We didn't know if anyone was going to be there. And so we come flying in, and we start descending through like 10,000 feet. And I say to the navigator, Archie DeJesus, and I'll tell you some Archie stories. Uh, this is why I say I'm surprised I'm alive. Right. Great kid, but not the sharpest navigator. Right. Now, we were all young and very inexperienced, but still. So we start descending down. I'm like, hey, Archie, what's the highest terrain within 25 nautical miles of the airfield? And he goes, 12 feet, without even missing a beat. He goes, 12 fucking feet. Towers are taller than 12 feet. I'm like, and I'm brand new. I'm like, well, I don't want to say I'm wrong. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, 
So we're flying around. Twelve at like feet it is. Two hundred feet off the ground, and and we have no, we don't have MVGs on yet, and we're and there's it's, it's a black hole, and I'm like we can't find the airfield, we can't get the radios to work, we can't get the lights to come on, and we gotta land this plane. So I look up in the sky and I see this light up in the sky. I'm like, oh, what the fuck is that? And I'm looking at it, and we're getting closer to it. I'm like, oh, it must be a helo. I'm like, hey, I think there's a... <gasps> and I realized it was a mountain. Oh, God. And I scream, mountain! And we do this zoom. And we're doing about 280 knots. And we go... <laughs> over the top of the mountain and go down. And we didn't have JIPWIS, ground proximity warning system back there, any TCAS, train collision avoidance system, none of that stuff. Yeah. Because this is like an E model, H model stuff. You know, like... You got like a coffee grinder for for an ADF. I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, like, yeah, it's old school shit. Twelve hundred feet. Didn't see the two zeros on the map. So he said twelve feet, and it was twelve hundred feet. feet. Yeah. So, so I'm like, so I'm like, we got to find this fucking airfield because we're gonna die if we don't. So I go, I got an idea to the pilot. I said, let's pop flares. He goes, oh, he goes. I'm like, look. Let's pop flares and just keep our speed up. By the time the flares go off, we'll be well past where the flares are at. Yeah. But hopefully some will see because they know we're coming. And it sounds like, it's, it's hard to describe it. It's a very unique sound when the flares are popping out of a plane. Okay. So these, you know, iridescent flares popping out mixed with with metal and and basically, you know, fireworks. Yeah. <laughs> You've seen it before, right? Sure. So they start popping out and like 30 seconds later, the runway lights come on and it's like, 11 o'clock, like four miles away. Wow. So we, we land, offload our shit, and get the hell out of there. Yeah. So we got to go back in that night. Back in. And I'm like, oh my God. Here we go again. So we get back to, we were stationed at a Seab in Oman. We go back. It's a four-hour flight back. And these are back when they're like, it's war, man. We're not going to worry about FAA rules and times. We're just going to fly until we got to get this shit done. I mean, sure. we're flying 18 hours and 19-hour missions when we weren't supposed to do that. But right. we had to because yeah. people were getting killed. So we went back into Seab, we landed, and I said, I'm getting a pair of MVGs. Now, I swapped out, and my buddy Chad Bushman popped in the seat as another co-pot, and I was riding shotgun behind them all. And we go back in to Jacobabad now. It's a place in Pakistan to offload some more stuff. And I'm like, we can't find this fucking place again. Oh, my gosh. You have to understand that when we started bombing shit, everything went out. Even Pakistan lost power because of, yep. so it was, just, there was nothing. So I was holding the NVGs in front of the aircraft commander's face as we were landing like this. And he's like, all right, we're on the ground. And we're taxiing around. It was like a scene out of like some sort of like science fiction movie. There's, there's a brick building plant real close to the place. So all the smoke and fog is running through the runway zone. And as, as we were taxiing, you know, the props are in low speed ground idle. So mm -hmm. they go to reverse pitch and they, they help slow the aircraft down. You know, when you go in reverse. And the smoke starts getting sucked in. As it did, you could see these um, special ops planes parked in like rows. And you yeah. can see the gun sticking out of it. It was kind of oh, surreal, right? Man. So we pull in and we offload our stuff. And then we finally go home. And you know you've flown a long fucking flight when you watch the sun come up, go down, and come back up. Mm. That's a long day. Mm -hmm. And I saw that plenty of times. Yeah. So we go back. We get some sleep. And we go back out the door the next day. And we're going to Afghanistan for the first time. Bagram. Start descending through 12,000 feet again. And I go, Archie, I'm going to ask this question again. <laughs> Come on, Archie. What's the highest Come train on, within man. 25 nautical airfield? He goes, 18,000 feet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I go, get us up there right now. The fuck? Let's go. So the way Bagram sits is, is much like this. I don't know if the camera can see this, but yeah. But it's a giant ring around, it's a big bowl. Okay. And, and Bagram sits on a heading of 0321. And they got Kabul way over here. 
So we're coming in from a place up pack north, which is Pakistan. And if you if you look at it, the way that it always looks to me is Afghanistan looks like a tortoise shell on a turtle's back. Okay. The way if you ever look at it, you kind of see what I'm talking about. You know, you got Pakistan that comes up and then goes folds up this way, and then you got Afghanistan that sits on its back. Okay. So we came up from the north and we were coming down through a valley, through the um, Pamir Valley, the um, what they used to call it. Um, there was a bunch of landmines. I mean, there's a million landmines in the in the country. I'll remember it later. But we come down through this pass and we start making down and we pop through the clouds. But just before we got to it, I said to Archie, "Go, hey Archie, I have a turn coming up because our our things, our navigation said, hey, you got a turn coming up. Yeah. Hey, what do you want me to do? He goes, hold your turn. I'm like, and and I was right in the turn when he said it. And I'm like, hold my turn. Does he mean turn out or? stay in my turn. I just decided to hold the turn. Okay. And as we came through the clouds, there was a giant 18,000 foot mountain right <laughs> off the nose. Had I actually rolled out, we would have went right, we into, right it. into it. And we had a plane crash three weeks Thanks prior to that because they, their maps had, uh, they were, they were um, Russian maps. And, and if you don't know this or not, Russia uses meters. So, okay. so, so 1200 meters is really closer to 4,000 feet, right? Cause it's only 3.3 to, so sure. these people thought they were at, the crap are out to and they just crash it on. Oh you could word. see well, my buddy was flying that night and he saw an explosion on the NVGs because it was they were on final behind him. Oh, so it was he saw it happen. He saw it happen. And then when we landed, they had they said you need to call your parents because the news was reporting a C one thirty crashed. Wow. And you know, they didn't say it was it was a Marine Corps. Sure. So anyways, coming through the clouds, thank God there was a mountain and he's like, Oh yeah, okay, roll out. I'm like, ah, fucking kidding me. So I roll out on the on the crack heading, we're coming through, and this is the first time I had seen this. And the First time you see it, you're not really prepared for it because it's surreal because you see it in the movies. The whole sky lit up in AAA, like snaking through the sky, you know, and, and you, you can you can kind of hear it in a way because like it's so big and so like it just lights the whole sky up. And you got to think of tracers like what every four or five rounds or something. Right. So just the amount of uh, yeah. shrapnel. It, it's it's insane. So that was on the approach end for <clears throat> runway two one. I look over at John Dureski and I go, Runway three? He goes, runway three. <laughs> Agreed. Let's go, please. So we make this hard last left turn. As we roll out, I, I see go, I hear Archie go, Sam, three o'clock. And it was a rocket pell grenade, but you can't tell at night when it first happened. So someone launched a grenade and went over the top of the aircraft. I'm like, what the fuck? And I, do, I could just see it because you have windows up here. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. So we make the turn and we land. And so I had written down chicken scratch, sort of approximate lat longs where this occurred where the RPG and where the AAA came from. So I called it in. And I was sitting at the far end of 2-3's runway, and we were refueling in the forward air refueling point. The FARP is what we call it. Okay. Forward air refueling point. We're getting on some gas, and we're offloading passengers, and we're taking on some other stuff, which I can't really, I guess. Sure. Yeah, you, you get it. So um, I look out, and I see this light come out of the sky, and I'm like, what the fuck is that? And I look up my nogs, and I don't see it. Put the nogs down. I see it. Nogs are NVGs. Okay. Night, night vision goggles. Okay. So um, I look up and I see it. It's, don't see it. Look in there. And again, all of a sudden, out of the sky came God just throwing, like Zeus throwing lightning down off of Olympus, Mount Olympus. It was an AC-130 gunship lighting those guys up. And there was just explosions just blowing up out of the ground, like just massive cloud of fire and just shrapnel everywhere. And I'm like, oh my God, I love this job. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Go USA! Whoa. So, so they took out all these, these, these. We called them twelve o'clock Charlie because this guy would pop people off every time. So they finally got him. It just so happened that they found him that night. Other people have called it in. It wasn't anything I did, anything special. Sure. It was just that they just happened to see him that night. 
So the Afghanis, let's give a little history about the Afghanis because this okay. is important to, to understand between the Afghanis and the Taliban, uh, the Muajin, and uh, the, these folks have been around for a long time. Right. And they've, they've lasted through a lot of wars. They fought the Russians. They fought the Brits. They've fought themselves. They fought the Americans. And, and they always seem to win with very limited, almost barbaric technology. Sure. Riding horseback and camels and stuff. So one of the deployments out of the seven I did, we were, well, more than one of the deployments, we were stationed inside the combat zone, inside the box. It used to be outside the combat zone we fly in. It was more cost-effective and easier to maintain a successful mission to be inside, which meant bye-bye to this. Yeah. Because once you're inside the AOR, era of responsibility, you no longer can drink any kind of bourbon or whiskey or anything. There was ways to get it in. We'll talk about that. Sure. sure. So we, um, let's, let's see. So they would do, they would bomb us every night. They would throw rockets in on, on when we were sleeping and stuff at 2 a.m. every time. It's just to disrupt your sleep cycle. Yeah. But they were super smart. So what they would do is they'd get a big metal tube and they would fill it full of water and they would cork it on both ends and they'd put it in a freezer and they'd freeze it overnight. They'd actually freeze half of it and they would set it up on a stand and they'd put a rocket in there and there was a primer at the bottom of the rocket on the other side of the ice and in the middle of the summer in Afghanistan, it gets 120 degrees out in the desert. Halfway through the day, the water would melt or through the night, the water would melt, the rocket would fall on the, on the primer and then shoot the rocket out. The beauty of it for them was they were nowhere to be seen when it happened. Sure. Because if they shot the rocket off, we've got orbiting well, everything. Exactly they just take them out. So That is brilliant. It, it is. It, it's, it's shockingly brilliant. Wow. Simple, barbaric, and brilliant. Yeah. So, and it used to happen at night because they'd have it all day melt and then, I mean, it was a solid block. And then, you know, we'd go out there and there'd be nothing there. So that's kind of how I, I realized that, you know, we're going to fight this war for a long time. I mean, we were there for 20 years. Yeah. You know, and I, and I flew... Uh, from 2001 to 2004, and then I took a break when I went as an instructor, and then I went back in 2009 to 2013 was, or 12 was my last deployment. You went back. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I enjoyed it for a lot of reasons. One, because I was really pissed off about 9-11, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people were. And not that I felt like I could really do something, but at least being part of our event felt like maybe, you know, I could do what I could to help, mm -hmm. albeit whatever small it was. Sure. So, plus, at that point, I was so senior in the plane and, you know, I was an evaluator and an instructor and I was a chief pilot. So, yeah. you know, I kind of had to do it. Sure. But I didn't mind it. Sure, sure, sure. The first week was always like excitement because you're like here again, but then after a while it wears off, you know? Yeah. So that's pretty much how that went. I don't get questions. Uh, hey, uh, well, no, that was, I, I, well, I saw the combat. I was like, okay, I'm pretty sure I know what that is. So that's where um, that came from. Yeah. But I was just looking through all, I mean, you had this awesome breakdown. And then, everything. Yeah. I don't know if it's public or not. I would love to no, show no, that, it, like that's overlay fine. it on there. We, that's something that I had to use when I, you know, went to Delta. They want to see the hours sure. because they're okay. very meticulous on what they want to make sure your hours match your logbook. Sure, sure, because sure, you know sure, they're sure. hiring someone for yeah, fairly important job. What was what was the most and and maybe that was and that might be why you were talking about it that that night seeing it oh. all right there. What was what's the most surreal, like, scary? Can't believe I'm doing this. It's also kind of awesome in a very terrible okay. way. What do you got? This is the worst thing that's that. This is the most terrifying event that happened to me when I was in the desert. Um, I've talked about it a few times. It's not like traumatizing, but it's certainly like, you know what I mean? Sure. So we were operating at a place called Sharana. It's in the middle of the coast region area up in Afghanistan. Um, it's a 4,000 foot runway. Uh, elevation is like 8,800 feet. Uh, it's... 
60 foot wide. It's a concrete strip now. It used to be dirt, but when I started operating there, it was concrete. Mm -hmm. This is the scariest thing. Then the coolest thing I'll tell you in a second, but the scariest okay. one. So this was when I was in the C-130J model. So this was 2009-ish timeframe. And uh, in the E model and the H model, you have two pilots, an engineer, a navigator, and two loadmasters. In the J model, because it's fully automated with glass cockpit and heads-up displays, HUDs as we call them, mm -hmm. two pilots, two loadmasters, that's it. Okay. Four crew members, you know, much more down from six. Yeah. Um, it's a lot quieter on the flight deck, but it requires much more concentration and, and skill on your part because you're moving everything. You know, the sure. engineer used to do the fuel. Navigator used <clears> to take care of the, the, the planning and all that stuff. Excuse me. So we're going in there and it's dark and we're on NVGs and it's and, and they have overt, uh, covert lighting. So overt and covert. Overt is, I can see it. It's overtly able to there, see it. Right. Covertly is, it's using IR lighting, which you can only see on NVGs. Gotcha. Night vision okay. goggles. Okay. So we're going in there and the runway has a four degree upslope to it. And I, I mean, you guys, four degrees is significant. I mean, like, sure. It's like, it's like this. Noticeable. So the first time I went in there, I pronged in hard. I mean, I, I, I thought we broke the plane yeah. because I didn't flare enough. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm never going to make this mistake again. So after that, they were fine. You just got to flare until the, basically it's uncomfortable. Yeah. So I landed, we land in, we get to the end of the runway and we would do a, we would do a 180 and we taxi into like a loading area and we do what's called an ERO, an engine running offload. We offload pallets and we offload, bring pallets back on. In this case, we offloaded two pallets and uh, some equipment. And we took on 70 Army Rangers and two pallets. <clears throat> so we get them on, we turn on the runway, and then I have them open the ramp and door, and they, I back the aircraft into the overrun to give myself more distance. Yeah. And as I'm doing it, I'm looking over, and remember what the FARP was for the refueling point? Mm -hmm. There's two helos, two Chinook helicopters with the two blades, and they're yeah. parked over here, oh, okay. and they're refueling. Yeah. And I go to the tower, I go, hey, are those helos going to stay there? And he goes, yeah, 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 they're going to stay there. I'm like, oh boy. Hmm. So we get clear for takeoff. And it was rolling. One of the helo goes into full hover mode. And right as I passed him, now a helo in full, I mean, those are big, big propellers. Yeah. And they're just pushing down. Now, we're 8,800 feet. And on the right-hand side is the whole built-up area. And the left-hand side is a 70-foot canyon. And we start going off the runway. And I can't get the aircraft back on. I got full rudder in. I have full nose gear tiller in, and I don't ever use it past about 30 knots. And the copod has full right aileron in, and I can't stand the runway. Our takeoff speed that day was 104 knots. You remember shit like this because it's like terrifying. Sure. VMCA, which is minimum controllable airspeed, is an airspeed which you can go down the runway, and if you have an engine failure or something happens, you can crash straight ahead within 35 feet of center line. Okay. We were at 80, and that was 84 knots that day. I was at 86 knots. We were, gonna, we were going off the runway, so I just pulled back. <laughs> we're stalling the aircraft. Yeah. Went down, in the, got airspeed down in the canyon, and then zoomed out of the canyon. You had to go off, over, down, yes. and then pull yes. back out. And I didn't did think about, I didn't think, oh, I'm going to go and do this. I just did it because yeah. it was like a reaction. Like, I got to get this aircraft, because I couldn't stop. I mean, we were going to, if we pulled the power, we wouldn't run off the runway. Right. And just flipped over. Yeah. So we get airborne, and, we're, we're, and I finally get airspeed, and I come, we're climbing out, and I unloaded on the tower. Yeah, I was about I just to say, unloaded what did he on say the tower. I mean, he goes, so the helo pilot comes back and goes, My bad. Oh, I'll never forget. Come on. My bad. And I'm like, I want that motherfucker's name. I want his rank. I said, when I I was I was hot up. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I calmed down eventually. We landed at Kandahar, and I had to debrief, debrief my ops officer. Mm. And I remember I was talking to him, and you know, I was talking about, and I was calm by then. And he's like, well, you're going to have to write it up. And I was talking to him, and, and I heard something, and then I felt something. And I look at his face. You know those movies where they show boxers getting hit in slow motion? They're like, sure. Yeah. A bomb went off at the front gate. And we were maybe 300 yards away from the front gate. And the repercussion, like all the dirt in the tent, because they're, they're in these tents, all the dirt came off the tent. And I could see his cheeks go like. <laughs> and we looked at each other and we just dropped down and went underneath his desk and we're just, we're just holding there. I'm like, yeah. oh my God. And, and, I, and I look over at my loadmaster, KJ Jefferson. <clears throat> and Kyle looks at me and I look at him and we had crew mustaches going. That was like what we would do. And he showed up that day and shaved it. Right. You don't shave without talking to the rest of the crew. I said, dude, why did you shave your mustache? That's totally bad luck, dude. Yeah. He goes, oh, man, I just couldn't take it anymore. I look over him and I go, you had to shave today, didn't you? <laughs> Kyle, you had to shave. Come on, Kyle. And he's just shaking his head. So we yeah. were there for like six hours. and what happened, It was a pretty bad deal. A lot of people died that day. But, you know, they, they had a truck bomb went off the front gate and just killed a lot of people. Yeah. So at one point, the, the flight surgeon, he looked at me and goes, hey, you – I had this issue with my back that had been bothering me for years, like this numbness and pain. He goes, hey, you want to go and take, have that take a look at now today? We got some time off. So I'm like, yeah, sure. So I went and I had a CAT scan done there in Afghanistan. Strangely enough, they have a CT machine there. They discovered a tumor in my neck. No kidding. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So, so in the span of one day, I almost got thrown off the runway. I almost got car bombed. And then I found I had a tumor growing out of my spine. Holy shit. So I got medevaced out within 12 hours to launch to Germany and spent a month in the hospital. Until if it was turned out, it was benign. You're right, but but like it was a whole year of me having to go oh through surgery. It was crazy, dude. Jeez, it was an insane awful. day. Never yeah, no, no, ever yeah. shave without telling everyone like, that you, you know. Son of a bitch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did you come back and talk to him? And, yeah, like, he, he felt so, well. He when I was leaving, he goes, "Man, I'm so sorry because oh, I, yeah. I had to leave my crew with somebody else." Sure, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Golly, so, so that was the craziest thing. The funnest thing was going into Rhino Landing Zone. Okay, Rhino was this staging area in the southern Afghanistan, right above the Pakistan border right where I say where the bottom of the, the turtle would be. Right. And um, this landing zone was 3,000 feet made out of just sand, and it was impossible to see. Going in there was pretty terrifying, and I just remember like, like we were the first crew to, we took the very first two casualties out of the war that day off the, okay. uh, and took them to Bahrain where they went off back home. But I remember we were coming in land, <clears throat> and Archie says, Brace, brace, brace for impact right before flare. And I go, oh shit, maybe I didn't put the gear down. And the loadmaster in the back is like, what's going on? And we landed. And it was pretty smooth landing, but after we landed, you know, and he just freaked everybody out by saying that. It was like, he was just, he's, I'll tell you more stories. He's just a crazy kid. So we're, we're bouncing down the runway, you know, because it's made out of sand. And it's like, oh my God, what are we doing? This is an unimproved strip. We get to the end of the runway, we try to turn around, we can't turn around. The nose gear had buried itself in the sand because it's all real deep sand. And the so radio. Why did, why did he say brace, brace? Because he was freaking out because he was just so high strung. Like he, he, he was. So he just decided to freak everybody okay, so, out for so no this, reason. This guy, anytime we would land any place in the common zone, he would pop the top escape hatch. He would stand up and he would take pictures. <laughs> like, like, you know that fucking game where you hit those <laughs> The whack-a-mole deal. I was like, this, this, this mofo is going to get popped. You were going Someone's to going to shoot this guy. In the side of the head as a sniper. Yeah. I remember the aircraft commander was like, Archie, get the fuck out of the top of the hatch, please. Yeah. So. Damn it, Archie. <laughs> damn it, Archie. So I call it the Archie stories. Archie yeah. Chronicles, actually. Archie Chronicles. So um, okay. 
one of the other pilots that was behind me says, let's offload the equipment. And what it did was it changed the CG, center of gravity. So the weight was in the back of the plane. As it pulled, came back, it popped the nose gear out of the sand. Wow. Because we had the air crew, uh, crew chief digging it out with a little shovel. And the airfield was coming under attack. Like, you guys get the fuck out of here. So like, as we're taxiing off, the whole entire airfield was like, there was there was firing going across oh the runway gosh. and shit was just everywhere. It was like, we got to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. And, and, but worst part is we had to come back there like three hours later. It was better the second time they had, they had suppressed, uh, the, the yeah. rebels or whatever out yeah. there, the, the Taliban. So that was an exciting one because that yeah. was like, you know, like I didn't think we were going to die. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't feel like that one. I thought we we're going to die. The one going, I told you on the runway. This yeah. one, I was just like, well, they're just bullets. I mean, you know, they, they might go through the plane, but like, you know, it's like the golden BB thing, you know, I mean, they're firing an AK-47. There's a couple of rocket pellet grenades, but they weren't even close. Right. I mean, they're, they're not very skilled with their stuff. Yeah. But yeah, still, yeah. you know. Good grief. So the the worst, the funnest was, I mean, to this day, do you miss it at all? I mean, and, and that's a great question. Well, let me preface it with this. Um, I don't want it to sound cynical or terrible when you say, oh, I miss it. You know, oh, I miss being under fire and almost dying, or I miss seeing explosions and knowing people are dying. That's not what we're saying, right? What's- yeah. So I, what I miss, and, and I understand exactly what you're asking me. It's a great question. I miss the freedom of what you could do as a pilot over there. Okay. It was a wild, wild west. You could get away with anything you wanted. We did some dumb shit. I'm not going to lie. Because we were not trained to that proficiency level. Back then, it was just the MC. The um, the, the MCs are like the special ops aircraft, okay? And they fly all that stuff, but they didn't have enough planes to do that because the war turned out to be a lot bigger than we expected. So yep. we wind up doing some you, of that flying that we weren't supposed to be doing. You got pushed into a got world and environment that you weren't. That, that's right. Okay. And I remember at one point, all the guys that were in Germany, remember I told you about the Germany guys? They had to come down and relieve us because yep. we were... We, we didn't we didn't need more people. And when they showed up, guess who were the seasoned veterans by then? You guys. Us. And I remember they were trying to, I'm like, get the fuck out of here, dude. You we just shut up the fuck up and you listen. Yeah. And then and then we'll go from there. Yeah. So, um, you know, Archie was a good thing for me because I remember at one point, <laughs> this is actually a funny story. It was a pretty quick one too. Yeah. I was coming up the stairs and we had to load radios, secure voice. Secure voice is a frequency that gives you the ability to talk to other agencies through code. It's like a special frequency that you can't hear on a normal radio. Wow, okay. So you have to load them in the plane, but you have to take the ladder out of the C-130. There's a flight deck that goes up because mm-hmm. you can't get in there. Even someone my size can't get in there. So I take the ladder out and I had a bag. We call it the red bag. It was our secrets bag. It had all the secure voice, top secret stuff in there. I throw it up on the top. I loaded it, got it all loaded. When it takes about 15, 20 minutes and it's a pretty intensive process you have to load some here in the front you have to go in the very back in the plane called the hog trough it's the thing that runs along the top of the plane you gotta load it up there you gotta get a ladder out for that because that's like 12 feet up right so i get all loaded i hop on top of the flight deck and archie he'd wear this fucking hat it was some world war ii crunch cap it was like you know like a bus driver cap and it had a had his, had his headset on it It was crunched down like the world war ii bomber pilots and he slid his nav chair back so the way it worked was if this was if this was the nav chair and this is my bag. I came up here <clears> like this, and he slides the chair back, and I had my head down. I didn't uh, have my helmet on at the time because uh, we'd wear a helmet. He hit me in the head and split my head wide open, and blood starts streaming down my face. And I jump, and I, I catch myself as I'm falling off the flight deck because there's two handles. 
ah, what the fuck? And I jump off the flight deck and I come out of the door and my buddy Dale, who drove us out to the plane, sees blood streaming out of my face. He's like, oh my God, dude, what's going on? I'm yeah. Like, like Archie. Freaking Archie. That's what I said, Archie. Yeah. That was like, anything went wrong? Archie. Noonan. Yeah. So I get I get it stopped and, and like, hey, you, my pilot, my commander is like, hey, do you want it? I'm like, no, we're going. I get it stopped. So I got it stopped. I got I put like a compression pad on and pulled my helmet on and strapped it really tight. <laughs> you know, I had a hell of a headache. So so then Archie goes, Hey, I need to use the radios to call operations. Can I use them? I'm like, yeah, sure. So there's three settings on the radio. There's a there's a cipher, which is for secure voice, there's a plane for normal radio, and then there's a zero button that zeroes all the radios out so you can start from scratch. Okay. Archie supposed to go to plane goes to zero it throws all my radios out so i gotta go back take the ladder back out and do all this shit over you have again. to redo the whole thing yeah and it takes oh, and you know and so and like i remember we got back from the from the mission and i get off and i had my helmet on and i remember i i still had it on because i was like i don't want it to start bleeding again and i come out of the plane and like my i guess my entire face was just covered in blood i just yeah. didn't the sweat and the blood were running together so you're like, what we, the hell, man? What's wrong with so, you? Towards the end of the deployment, there were some other things he did. Like, he burned down a village. What? With flares. <laughs> yeah. You're Whoa, so, yeah. What? Hold, hold up just a second. Archie just went from a nemesis to, like, a freaking villain. To, to a fucking pyro. <laughs> what happened? So, so the aircraft has the, the, the chaff and flare I was talking about, right? So when you land, the flares are supposed to... The, the, the flares can come out automatically. Like, if, if it senses... Uh, a heat signature from a missile launch, it automatically launches the flares to help prevent you from getting shot out of the sky. Okay. So there's a auto and a manual switch. You're supposed to go to manual below a certain altitude because the closer you get to ground, the reflective heat can cause a and plume and, and- You just say, no, we're not yeah. under attack, we're fine. That's right. So Archie forgot to go to auto. I um, got to go to, to, to manual. So he went to auto. He was in auto. So I'm in the flare and I see these- And these flares are bouncing off the wing. And I'm like, oh my God, there's fuel in there, dude. Yeah. And- so we get to the end of the runway, we taxi clear, we shut down, and then we see a fire truck run by. Oh, and then two, and then three, then four, six fire trucks running down this runway, and there's just a huge flame at the end of the runway, and there was these mud huts that were just burned oh, down. So they had to do like a re-education. So, oh, no shit. Oh my gosh. Like at one point, we were at this airfield, and it was, we were on the areas where you're allowed to be, and then there's red areas you can't be because they haven't demined it. So Archie decides to go on a fucking Easter egg hunt for world for war trophies. And he's walking through this fucking minefield. And I'm I'm on the top of the wing with a flashlight going, Archie, what the fuck are you doing? And I'm shining the flashlight. I'm like, dude, stop. And our crew chief, this poor lovable son of a bitch, is just following like a fucking little uh-huh. kitten. And and I have to make him go back because underneath the wing is this metal spear. Bike sticking out of the ground, and I swear to God, to this day, I I still believe it was a mine. Sure, he would have stepped and he went right through the fucking wing and just killed everybody. So I made him go back all the way through. He comes back with like I don't know a bunch of fucking metal and she's like, look what I got. I'm like, dude, you gotta be fucking kidding me. So at towards the end of the deployment, we switched navigators finally, and I'm sitting. The way the 130 works is like you got the two seats here and you got these circuit breaker panels all the way around. Okay. And I'm leaning against the circuit breaker panel and I'm just fucking drenched in sweat. It's like 110 degrees. The checklists are melting, you know, because it's like 140 inside the plane. And I'm just like soaked through the flight suit. And Archie goes, you know, co co-pilot, you're really green at the beginning of this deployment, but I think I really taught you some good stuff. And I go, dude, you have no fucking idea. Wow. And I was looking across the loadmaster, and he's just like, jeez. The Archie Chronicles, the Archie man. Chronicles. That's so good. All right, my last question for you, because we're like been rolling for forever. Right. This is great. Uh, 
Can you rattle off all the different planes that you've flown? Yeah, sure. So uh, the very first plane I flew was uh, was the Bonanza Mongols. Um, Mooney, sorry, Mooney. Mooney. Um, and then I flew a Cessna 172. I flew T4G gliders at the Academy for a three-week course, which was the funnest thing I've ever done because it's unpowered. It's amazing. I cannot believe I didn't die. I mean, you get towed by another aircraft, right? Sure. So, uh, and then, uh, of course, I flew the T-37, the Tweet, uh, twin-engine subsonic plane that I don't even know how, called the 6,000-pound dog whistle because it's the loudest aircraft you could ever, I mean, it's like 180 decibels. Wow. The T-1, the Beach 400, uh, the C-130 E and H models, uh, the C-130J model. Then, of course, I got hired by Delta in 2014. I've flown the MD-88, the MD-90, which are the Mad Dog DC-9 type rating. Okay. The Boeing 717, which is a souped-up version of the DC-9, uh, all-glass cockpit. And then my current aircraft, which I'm a captain on international wide body, which is the Boeing 767-757. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. So at, at, at any point, do you ever get the chance? I'm, I'm sure you do hanging around guys like this, but do you just ever miss the good old... Just VFR. It's a great question. So, in fact, Dan and I were talking about this earlier today, and I want my own plane. But part of me is like, man, I do this for a living. And when you come home, you're kind of tired. Like, like I've always, I'm a, I'm a very conservative pilot. I've always been. I don't like to push a lot of stuff. I did a lot of stupid shit in the war because yeah. we didn't really know what we're doing. Well, under circumstances, yeah, different right. circumstances. But, yeah. but now I'm like, you know, there's, there's old pilots, there's bold pilots, right? But there's no old bold pilots. Sure. And, and that's a very true statement. So. I, I t approach everything with with measured caution. Mm -hmm. So for flying, I, I've never had an accident with an aircraft. Uh, I've never been violated, knock on wood. Um, I've had some things I've had to report to boards for, but they were you know, exonerated. But because I, I'm very careful, and I feel like if I buy my own plane, am I going to be tired one day and try to push myself to fly? Yeah. But I, I love the feeling of it. But but you know, right now, planes are so expensive. I mean, it's insane. Oh, like, yeah, I mean, sure, I mean, sure, sure. Crazy. A Husky is like $400,000 for a single-engine plane. Yeah. Crazy. Because 120 knots. Yeah. So I guess I'm, I do want the freedom of having to go and do that. But I, I, I mean, I have the greatest job in the world. I mean, I'm sitting up at 38,000 feet going 500 miles an hour, basically staring out a window, yeah. getting to look at coastlines, getting to go great locations like Amsterdam and Paris. And I mean, you, you don't, you don't does, does get paid to do this shit. Does it ever, only because I've heard it from, from other people, they say, yeah, I, I love flying, but. If it ever was for work, it would ruin it. it. It can. It is work. Don't get me wrong. There's times when it's work. When you're working an 18-hour day, you're flying three legs. You don't have meals, time to eat. You got passengers who are, who are pissed off because they're wearing the masks, which it was. You know, you got to make the decision. I had to kick off someone a couple weeks ago, you know, for an incident. So, you know, those are decisions that were much easier in the military because, you know, you make a military decision and it's done. Mm -hmm. People just follow. But but now you're dealing with the general public. Sure. And, sure. and and the general public is anything but but the structured. The rules are different. The rules don't apply to some people. They yeah. Think. Yep. So, I believe if I have my own plane, I can enjoy that. But I need to be in the right mindset. Like when I come home from a trip, I usually I'm coming back from a red eye, maybe, and I need to get some sleep. And there's people who go out and fly. I'm like, are you really really rested to do that? Like, are you 100? Yeah. And we we talked about this earlier earlier too. It's funny. Good segue is we. A lot of people crash. Like there was a guy at Arkansas last year that crashed. He was a airline pilot. Yeah. And he almost killed himself. This guy should not have done that. But there's things that you can't avoid. I mean, you could be the most perfect pilot and fly the most perfect approach and then you hit turbulence. But these guys are flying at such the, the edge of of what's of the say, envelope. It, I mean, seriously. Yeah. So I'm an inside the envelope guy. I don't like to be outside the envelope because 
you, you can't ever recover sometimes. You just can't. Yeah. The only way to do it is to crash. Yeah. You know, you look at these, these, what are the recent incidents with the guy being violated for a low flight? What was his name, Dean? Trent Palmer and then the other guy that jumped out of the plane. Yeah. Trevor Jacobs. I mean, th this is the kind of shit we're dealing with now, and it gives us a bad name. Sure. That's it, that, that Trevor Palmer, uh, Trent, did anything. We don't know what the whole story is yet, but but the deal is with this type of stuff is we got so many young people getting into aviation for the wrong reasons. I want to be an Instagram star. You know, I want to have 100,000 followers. I didn't think about it like that. Okay, like I want to have a, dude, go be a fucking, make donuts or or, or like, like, I don't know, Go do something else that's not going to kill somebody, or you know, because sure. because you don't have the experience. And and there's people doing things to gain yeah. followers. Like I'm going to jump out of one plane and jump into another plane. The, the recent Red Bull thing. Yeah. Why? Right. What? Right. What? That you're it's the laws of right. gravity and laws of physics, my friend. Yeah. So yeah, does that make so? So sure. to answer your question, I would love to, but I'm not in a stage in my life where I feel like I could give it the professionalism and the attention to detail that I need to. I think that says a whole lot about who you are as a pilot though. I mean, when we, when we tally up everything we've talked about here, I mean, no one is more qualified from just a statistic, a statistic standpoint than you, but you're still choosing to go. Not yet. Flying is not, if it was easy, everyone would do it well, but not everyone does it well. Some people, I mean, any, you can teach any idiot <laughs> to take off and land a plane. Yeah. But can you teach him to do it every time and then when something bad happens, be able to recover from it and not die? Yeah. And that's the difference between a good pilot and an okay pilot and a competent pilot. And I don't really need to be a great pilot. I just want to be a safe and competent pilot. That's all I really sure. look for. So I, I, like I said, measured caution with everything I do. If I have to do something that's outside the envelope for a combat reason, that's a different story, but I do still measure it and weigh it before I do it. And I always get the input from the other crew members. I would never just make a decision by myself. And I think when you fly by yourself solo, sometimes you don't have that to bounce off people. So maybe that's why some people push it. You know, look at the Steve Henry's, you know, he, I mean, he yeah. flies the plane, he's 300 horsepower aircraft. And like, I mean, he's got great skill. There's no denying that. Sure. But, but like, he's right on the edge of what that plane can do. And that mm -hmm. sets a testament to his skill. But at some point, if something happens that's outside his wheelbox, he, you're screwed. So yeah. I like to operate with some wiggle room. Sure. Well, Flex I know factor. I know exactly what you mean. My aviation career is, I mean, absolutely molecular compared to what you've done. However, we fly a whole bunch. You know, me, me and Justin. So yeah, it is. It is a luxury to be able to say, in 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 just. I mean. We're flying from from Arkansas to Florida. I mean, we're not doing anything yeah, crazy, yeah, right? Yeah. And we're pre-flight and we're doing all this stuff, and it is so wonderful to go. Should we? Should we? Do you think we should go around that cell? Uh, I don't know. Let's 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 take a look and let's do. I mean, just to have that security Absolutely. feeling is so huge. Absolutely. And then I'll I'll take one of the little Cherokees down and, and fly to Monroe, Louisiana. You know, hometown, and I'm like. It's just me. I don't. I don't have that that security blanket there you don't. anymore. You don't. And it changes. It really changes everything. And that that's happening to me now that I upgraded to captain. I'm flying with some brand new co-pilots that have barely any hours, and I have to. You know, there, there's a good. There's a good side and bad side. The good side of flying with someone who's not as experienced is you are more in the moment. When you fly with a highly competent pilot, sometimes you're like, yeah, he's got it. He knows what he's doing. She knows what she's doing. I'm just yeah. gonna take a nap, and you can become complacent. And that's a huge. I am right? so glad you said that because it it adds a an incredibly false sense of security. It does. 
It really does. Justin, great pilot. Love flying with him. And I have I can throw the overwhelming majority of what I've learned to him, and I'm so grateful for it. But you get in that stance where you're like, okay, you know, he's PIC, right? And and I'm doing radios, feeling good about myself. And but it's like he's got it. He's he's got that that cow flap change. He's got the the this or that, whatever, no big deal. So you get into this security sense, but at the same time, you then get in your head and you're like what if he keels over and dies and it's up to me? Like, am I, am, am I actually prepared to do this? And now I'm super paranoid about everything. That's right. So it's this really weird balance between the two. I've been in some of the worst situations with very competent pilots because I've allowed that to happen. And, and I've learned from those when I was younger. And, yeah. you know, so now I draw from that. Well, did, do you prefer flying with, let's say you are not PIC? Right. Uh, would you prefer for that person to have more or less experience than you? If I was... The non-PIC flying like second command, would mm -hmm. I want the person to have more experience than me? Yeah. Um, I think everybody would like that because in a way, because you, I've always felt, I, I second guess myself sometimes. I think everyone does with certain things. I know my stuff, but I second guess myself. So sometimes you get, when you're flying with a highly competent person, you're like, if I bounce this odd day off them and they agree, that means I know what I'm doing. Right. But if you bounce yeah. ahead, you have someone that doesn't know what they're doing and they agree, you're not going to know. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like, oh wait, yeah. was that a good call? That, that's yeah. right. So, but that's what experience does for you, and I, uh, I'm, I spent many years as an aircraft commander in the military, an evaluator, and I'm starting to draw back on that now as a captain at the airline. But it's a different environment, you know. Sure. You know, you're, you're not tasked with a mission that has to get done no matter what. Now it's like I can go. You know what? I'll, I'm going to go back to the gate and remove this passenger. I don't want this shit on my plane. Yeah. Or I'm going to go and I'm going to stop and we're going to ask this question. Or we're going to. They want me to fly visual approach. I can't see the runway. I want vectors for the ILS. I'm very, very conservative, and, sure. and I'm the boss now, so I, I can make those rules. When yeah. I was not the boss, sometimes pilots would push me in a corner I was not comfortable with, but I was afraid to speak up, yeah. and maybe I would, but then you get shut down, and then there becomes a dynamic in there. Right. So, you know, I lay it out early with the with the I'm like, look, we're both fallible. You know, we can both make mistakes. So, if you see something that doesn't seem right, the chances are it's probably not right. Say something. Say Better something. To, Call me out on and, it, and then we'll, we'll work together to fix it. A yeah. solution. Um, and, uh, I think the younger generation, the good stuff about the younger generation, other than, you know, the, is that they're more willing to speak up when something's wrong. The older generation is afraid to challenge the captain. It's a very Asian flying type mentality. If you know the Asian community, like China air and air Asian stuff, it's like, you never question the captain. Yeah. And that's what happened with that going in, you know, they were tired and make mistakes, but here we're, we're much more like dynamic and we're able to talk to each other, but sure. there, there's a balance. I mean, you have to say, sure, okay, yeah. I get what you're getting at, but this is still the safe way we're going to go with my way. And you have to have the experience, the confidence and the knowledge to build it, to stand behind that decision and do sure. it. Sure. And yeah. I'm getting better at that. hundred percent. It's a, it's all about balance. That's right, man. We could talk forever. I know. We've got I know. to end I know. it. I know. We're going to have you back on. And that's a wrap.